one of the wonderful things about where we go verse by verse through the Bible is that no matter where we are, there's application for our lives today. And we're going to finish out chapter eight today. Um, and it's interesting. It's kind of amusing to me because on the day before Halloween, we're going to be talking about two demon possessed men that are walking out of the graveyard. I find that a little bit amusing today. Um, and uh, these two men that come out of the graveyard, demon-possessed, are approaching Jesus, and they're possessed by, as we'll find out, not just one demon, but possibly hundreds or even thousands of demons residing inside these two guys. And, but it doesn't really make any difference. They're no match for Jesus, not at all. In fact, there's not even a confrontation because darkness, evil forces, all of that have to flee before Jesus. And so it's appropriate that that's our topic this morning. And so because these two men were radically changed, I have uh, dubbed this one under new management. Okay, they're, not, they're no longer under the control of these demonic forces. They are now under the protection and care of Jesus Christ. So under new management, or you could call it the day that Jesus canceled Halloween. <laughs> All right. Well, since Jake shared last Sunday, um, it's been a few weeks, so I'll remind you where we left off. Jesus and his disciples had climbed into the boat. They left the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they were headed over to the other side. Jesus had had a very long day of preaching and healing people, and at the end of the day, he was exhausted. He was completely wiped out. And so on the, other, on the, the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he falls asleep, falls asleep in the front of the boat. He's completely out when all of a sudden a huge storm pops up. Right out of nowhere, the supernatural storm. We know it's supernatural because these fishermen, these disciples who had been professional fishermen their entire lives are completely freaked out. They have done everything they know how to do in their human strength and they still, they still can't figure it out. They're actually convinced that they're going to die at this point. So they panic and they wake Jesus up. They wait till the last resort and they go to Jesus and try to wake him up. Now, they could have saved themselves all the fear and anxiety that they were experiencing if they had gone to Jesus first, if they had woken him up first instead of trying to rely on their own power. But that's really what we do. There's a big lesson in there for you and me because we worry about so much stuff in life. And let's be honest, most of it never happens. The things we're anxious about, the things that we worry about that make us sick at night, most of those things never happen. And yet we wait oftentimes to approach the Lord in prayer as a last resort when we could be going to him at the beginning. And if we did that, then we would get his peace. He would give us his peace, the peace that goes beyond understanding. And we can trust him. Listen to this. We can trust him regardless of our circumstances or regardless of the outcome. He will give us his peace in the midst of any circumstance, in the, many, in, the, in the midst of any result, any outcome. And we see the humanity of Jesus in this situation. He's so wiped out physically that he's sleeping soundly in the midst of the chaos. And when they wake him up, he says to them, oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Now, I read this. Jesus didn't say this after he calmed the storm. Okay, he said this before he calmed the storm. So put yourself in this situation. You're in the boat. It's being tossed all over the place. Waves are breaking over the boat. It's filling up with water. They're sopped. They're soaked. It's raining. And, they, and Jesus looks at them and says, why are you guys freaking out? I would have been like, uh, hello, all of this? This is why we're freaking out. 
and then he calms the storm. And he would say the same thing to you and to me when we get anxious, when we freak out in the midst of our circumstances, and he says, why are you so upset? And we do that from time to time. You know, we read Bible verses. People send us encouraging notes, and we think, that's nice, that's great, but you don't understand my situation. This thing is huge, as if it makes any difference to God. Does it make any difference to God how big it is? Jesus is saying to them, you should have great faith, not because of your intellect, not because of your skill, your knowledge, but because of who is in the boat with you. That's why you should have great faith. If I'm at peace, you could be at peace. In John 14, Jesus tells them, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not the kind of peace that the world gives. Don't be troubled and don't be afraid. Whatever's going on in your life today, whatever situation you find yourself in, don't be troubled, don't be afraid. We should find comfort in that from the Lord. And he calms down the storm with just a few words. He says, peace, be still. And that word, that phrase, be still in the Greek is the word phimu. Phimu, which literally means be muzzled. Be muzzled, like the muzzle that you would put on a dog. Jesus says to the storm, he literally puts a muzzle on the storm and everything goes calm. Now we know that this is a supernatural storm again and that it was stirred up by the devil because this is the same word, Fimu, that Jesus used when demons are crying out, trying to um, tell everybody who he is. They're trying to identify him and they're saying, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, Fimu, be still, be quiet, be muzzled. So again, we know that this storm has been stirred up by the enemy. But immediately, everything is calm. From a raging storm to complete peace, just like that. Talk about freaked out. Can you imagine being in a complete squall, and then all of a sudden, no more wind, no more rain, calm sea. It says that they were afraid. The disciples were afraid. They were in awe of this man. Who is he that even nature obeys him? See, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience telling them that Jesus is king. That's the whole theme of the book of Matthew. Jesus is the king, the Messiah that we've been waiting for, and his kingdom is here. And he proved it. He proved it racially, right? He's Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. And he also proved it genetically. He is a son of David. And he proved it divinely because when John the Baptist dunked him under the water, he came up and God said audibly, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he proved it spiritually when he overcame Satan in the wilderness. When he was being tempted, he overcame him spiritually. And then theologically, in the Sermon on the Mount that we went through, he proved it. And then he proved his power over sickness and his power over death and disease. And then we just saw last week his power over nature. And today we're going to see his power and his control over darkness and the demonic forces of this world. Matthew is answering the question, does this man have the right to rule physically and spiritually? And the answer is a resounding yes. Okay, turn with me to Matthew 8, 28 through 34, rounding out Matthew 8 today. And when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. 
So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they came and they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Our culture has an obsession with the occult. Um, People find it fascinating. Um, They find demonic activity fascinating because it has the allure of power. It has the allure of power, and people become attracted to that. Now, demons, as fallen angels, are powerful beings. I mean, we read in 2 Kings that an angel was sent out to the enemies of the Israelites and completely wiped out 185,000 enemy soldiers in one night. One angel, 185,000, took them out. Angels are powerful beings, even fallen angels. And the assumption is that if people uh, worship them, that if they will give them their worship, they will give Satan their worship, that they will get power from that. Now, we're told that Satan's whole goal is to steal and to kill and destroy. That is his main goal. That's what he uses his power for. And the people who practice the occult eventually find out that that power that they thought they would have is actually bondage. It's actually holding them in bondage. They're not in control. The demonic powers are in control. Jesus offers freedom, right? And peace and life and mercy and the power to live the overcoming life in this lost world. The devil is a liar and he offers bondage and fear and death. Freedom, peace, and life, or bondage, fear, and death. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that God's plan, before the foundation of the world, is what we're told, is that Jesus would redeem both man and the earth. He was going to come here twice, once to redeem man, a second time to redeem the earth. And when Jesus took on human form, he did so humbly to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's how he redeemed man. But when he comes back, He's going to be riding in as a victorious king. He's coming with his redeemed saints to redeem the earth. In order for him to do that, he's going to have to have absolute power and absolute control over the demonic hosts. He'll need to overpower the forces that hold people in mental and spiritual bondage. In 1 John 3.8, he writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the reason why he appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you may have seen this picture before, that picture up there. Has anybody seen this picture before? Jesus arm wrestling the devil. Now, I understand what the artist is going for here. I understand the sentiment, but it couldn't be farther from the truth. Because Satan's no match for Jesus. Okay, Satan is a created being. Jesus is the creator. Okay, regardless of what... The Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses might say they're not brothers. You know, God didn't create them at the same time. Jesus always was, always is, and always will be. Satan was a created being. So there is no contest. Um, The devil, listen to what it says in Revelations 20, 20, verses 1 through 3. Um, Satan, although he has a lot of power, He knows the end of the book. He knows what's coming. And this is what's coming at the end of the book. Revelations 20, 
Verse 1, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until a thousand years were ended. An angel binds Satan. Okay, And it doesn't tell us that it was Michael, the archangel. It just says an angel. Okay, So if Satan could be chained up and thrown into the pit by, dare I say, a regular angel, he's no match for Jesus Christ. Okay? You with me? All right. So Jesus and the boys, Jesus and the disciples, crossed over the Sea of Galilee by night. By the time they get there, it's daylight. They traveled six miles. And they land in an area called the Gerasenes. It's on the eastern shore. And it's a very diverse area. There are some Jewish people that are living there, but it's mostly Gentiles. It's really a Gentile part of the country. So it's kind of unusual that Jesus is going over there. But Matthew tells us that two men come out of the tombs. In Mark and Luke's Gospels, this is in three of them. In Mark and Luke, they tell us that there was, they focus on one man. They focus on the more dominant of the two, the one that Jesus is speaking with. But in Matthew, it tells us there's two. I say they focus on the more dominant of the two because it's very clear in this portion of Scripture that people can be possessed or oppressed by demons in varying degrees, okay? Now, I want to make a distinction because while people can be demonically um, possessed, completely controlled by demons, they can also be demonically oppressed, or influenced. Okay, they're not the same thing. People can be possessed, but they can also be oppressed and influenced. Now, we know that because as Christians, we are constantly being barraged by the enemy. We are constantly under demonic opposition, all right, but not demonic possession. Uh, Christians can be demonically oppressed, but they can't be demonically possessed um, because we belong to the Lord. He has purchased us with a price. The Holy Spirit is living inside of us. There's no room for demons. It says in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? Okay, the answer being none. The two can't exist in the same space. If you are a Christian, you are not going to be demonically possessed. If you're born again, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life and you're living to please him, you don't have anything to worry about from demonic possession. But there is oppression. Uh, We can also be demonically influenced. Oppression comes from the outside, but influence comes from what you let in. That makes sense. We are constantly barraged by the enemy, but you don't have to let any of it in. Okay, Influence comes from what you let in. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Okay, he's knocking at the door of your heart. Are you going to let him come in? What else are you going to let come into your life? People leave doors open in their life that invite in demonic influence. Okay, not much different than if you lived in a really bad part of town and you left your door open and your windows open, eventually somebody's going to come in and it ain't going to be good. Eventually something's going to come in. You're like, what are we exposing ourselves to? Right? What doors are you opening in your life? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you letting into your mind? I think it's safe to say that the majority of the entertainment industry in our country right now is under demonic influence. Okay? Their number one goal 
the demons, the demonic influence, is to steer you and influence you away from God. And if you're paying attention at all to what the world has to offer, it's steering people completely away from the things of the Lord. The more people expose themselves to things that go against God's word, the easier it is for the enemy to gain a foothold in their life. What are we letting in? Demons will attack us both mentally and spiritually and sometimes physically. They're going to hammer away at us in the spirit realm and try to derail our minds, okay, if you let them. That's why Paul writes so emphatically that our Christian life in this fallen world is going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle. This world is currently under Satan's control. He's the one right now that is called the prince of this world. But he has no power in the presence of Jesus, which is what we're going to see here today. If Jesus is living inside of you and he's living inside of me, he has no power over you. He's just kind of like a, a roaring toothless lion that's going around roaring threats at you. Okay, but you're in no danger from him because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But it's going to be a battle. And Paul warns us that even as God's own children, we're not going to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy if we're not utilizing what God has given us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. See if I can find it easily. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 6. This is verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. <clears throat> Paul is writing this as a prisoner, okay? He's sitting in prison in chains. There would have been a Roman guard in there with him at all times. Sometimes he was chained to the Roman guard. And I find it kind of amusing because even though Paul is under arrest here, the Roman soldiers are really the ones that are being held captive to Paul as he's preaching at them the whole time. And some of them are actually getting saved, Okay, so they're the ones that are actually held captive. I find that kind of amusing. But he's looking at these Roman guards and he's giving us a great analogy that this Christian life isn't going to be a rose garden. It's going to be a battle. And you're now standing in enemy territory. You're living in a world that is now currently being controlled by the devil. And it's pretty clear here by what he writes that there's different levels of evil in the world. A hierarchy, if you will. They attack people. They attack leaders, governments, regions, and countries. There are countries in the world that are under severe demonic strongholds. Jake talked about it last week. He talked about Burma. That is a country that is, and all of Asia, as a matter of fact, under severe demonic influence. It is very overt. You can see it. In America, their campaign has been mostly subtle, but that ain't the case anymore. It's becoming more and more overt. We see clear demonic influence in our government. Um, in our culture, 
uh, the war on the family, the war on parents and children. The progressive church in America is under demonic influence, I believe. They're embracing culture and they're telling people exactly what they want to hear. They're entertaining people instead of preaching the truth. They're playing Michael Jackson songs as you watch in. (laughs) Uh, Demonic influence is real. And their number one job is to wage war on God's people. The reason why they're waging war on you and me is because we are made in the image of God. They hate God. They hate everything about him, everything that he has created. And because you and I are made in his image, they are trying to take us out. And if you aren't prepared spiritually, then it's going to be easy to end up a casualty. And the first thing Paul tells us is to fasten on the belt of truth. Now, the belt... Hold all, I'm, I'm so thankful for belts <laughs> or even suspenders, right? Put on the suspenders of truth. The belt of truth holds all things together. It keeps things in place. You know, you can hang things off the belt, but it all has to be controlled or connected to the truth. Truth will keep you centered. It will never move. Truth is not relative, despite what they would say in our day. The King James Version says, gird up your loins with the belt of truth. Now, the loins also speaks of the private life. Is there truth in your private life? Or is there sin? Is there deceitfulness in your private life? Paul tells us first and foremost, you need the belt of truth or you're going to come unraveled. You're going to be exposed. Next is the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate goes over your hearts. Our hearts have been been declared righteous because of who has taken up residence there. And it's his righteousness that's going to protect our hearts against um, all of the schemes, all of the um, plans of the devil. You can take hits in a lot of areas, but if you take the one to the heart, it's going to be over. The breastplate of righteousness. We put it on by seeking God and all of his righteousness. We talked about this, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. King David said we need to make him our dwelling place. We need to make his righteousness our dwelling place. We need the desire that his ways become our ways so that we can live rightly. And when God reveals an area in your life that needs to be corrected, we need to submit to him and let him work in our lives, work out righteousness in our lives. Because if we say no to the Lord, when he puts his finger on something, something that's unrighteous in our lives, and we say no, what we're doing is we're opening up a crack in our armor for Satan's arrows to get in. And he's got really good aim. So we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Then he tells us that we need to put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shoes that the Roman soldiers would wear uh, into battle had these little spikes on the bottom of them. They looked like cleats, basically. And they would wear these things into battle. So whether they were advancing or whether they were holding their ground, wearing these shoes gave them a tactical advantage. They could stand firm wherever they were. So what does it mean, the shoes of readiness and the gospel of peace? In 1 Peter 3.14, Peter's writing to the church about suffering for righteousness, and he says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to share the gospel, the good news, with anyone who asks you, why are you so different? Like, why aren't you freaked out by everything that's going on? Well, let me tell you, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
And I believe that this is not my final destination. And he has everything under control. I'm not worried. I'm forgiven. And I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven. So be ready. Whether we're defending the faith, holding our ground, or whether we're sharing the gospel, advancing his kingdom, we need to be wearing, wearing these shoes of readiness. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul encourages him. He says, Timothy, preach the word to be ready in season and out of season. Whatever season we find ourselves in, we must be ready and able to be sharing the gospel with other people. That's why we walk through the scriptures the way we do. That's the reason why we go through verse by verse. We dig into God's word so it stirs up an appetite in us. And then hopefully you guys go home and read it more through the week. And then you're prepared, you're ready to share with people when you get the opportunity. There's no excuse for the American Christian not to be ready. Leisha and I were having a conversation this week about a book that she was reading. It's about end times, and it goes through the end times chronologically to kind of help you better understand it. And in it, he was touching on a verse that we're going to get to in uh, just a few short weeks, Matthew 10. And Jesus is sending out his disciples to preach the kingdom, and this is what he says. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, this always kind of stumped me and I never really thought about it before, probably because there wasn't a lot of reason for Christians to think about this kind of stuff. But Sodom and Gomorrah obviously are synonymous with sin and debauchery and human depravity and sin and judgment. But the people in Jesus's day knew more than the people in Sodom and Gomorrah's day, right? They didn't know what the people in Jesus's day knew, that the Messiah had come, and it was evident by his words and by his works, who he was and where he was from. How much more in our day will people be judged harshly? We have, we have access to every kind of devotional, every book, every Bible that you could possibly want. The world will be judged in light of the fact that although there was overwhelming evidence and testimony, they still rejected him. For the Christian, there's no excuse not to be ready. Then we're to take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith with which we can extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. Now, you may have seen this in some medieval movies, right? This would have been the job to have. You stand way back behind everybody else, the longbow archers, and they dip their arrows in tar and then they would light them on fire. And then they would shoot them from a very great distance away into the enemy. I think that's the job to have right there. So they would shoot these fiery arrows. Now, if you didn't have a shield, chances are you weren't going to last very long. In fact, lots of people died before the battle even began because of these arrows. Now, if you have a shield, you can protect yourself, right? Most of the poorer countries, they would have you know, wooden shields. They would have shields made of wood. Okay, not great. It'll stop an arrow. But a flaming arrow is still a problem if you've got a wooden shield. If you wanted to stop or extinguish a flaming arrow, you had to have a metal shield. That's what the Roman soldiers had. They had metal shields. These, these things were incredible defensive weapons. Um, the shields would go from their shins up to about here. It's so almost covered their whole body. And they were kind of wrapped around like this. So you could withstand a frontal attack or attacks from angles. And one of the amazing things about them is they also connected to each other. So as they marched into battle, the ones in front would kind of crouch down like this and march. And they would hook their shields with the people next to them. And the ones behind them would raise their shields up over them, kind of as in a roof to protect everybody in front. And then the people on the sides would turn theirs out 
So you were completely, it was like a human tank going into battle. And if the formation was right, you could shoot hundreds of arrows at that formation. They weren't anything getting in. Nobody was going to get hurt. There's a big lesson there, right? You need the shield of faith. You can't do battle without the shield of faith. We're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But you know what's better than one shield? A whole bunch of shields. A whole bunch of us walking side by side together, doing battle together, encouraging and strengthening one another, walking out this Christian life in community, right? We're going to be stronger. We're going to be more protected if we're doing that together. Big word in the church today is deconstruction. If you haven't heard that. People are questioning their faith and they're starting to take it apart. And they're like, I don't know if I believe this part. I mean, you know, I like Jesus. I'm not sure he's the son of God, but he taught some cool things. I don't believe the Old Testament. I think most of that's made up. So they start deconstructing their faith. And guess what? Most of them are walking away from Jesus. They're walking away from the Lord. They face some hard times. Things haven't turned out the way that they thought they should. And so they start questioning God. They start questioning their faith and they throw away their shield and it makes them very easy targets for the enemy. And after they drop their shield, then they take off their helmet, their helmet of salvation. Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. We battle not against flesh and blood. And because that's the case, where do most of these battles take place? In our minds. Most of the battles take place in our minds. I want to say something that was very profound to me the first time I heard it, and I hope it sets some of you free today. Not every thought that you have is yours. Not every thought that you have is yours. Have you ever been sitting there and all of a sudden a thought pops into your head and you're like, where in the world did that come from? Especially when you're praying. You're praying and you're like, wait a minute, whoa, where did that come from? That thought is not yours. The enemy is waging war on your mind, trying to distract you, shooting fiery arrows at you, darts into your mind. And it is our job to put on the helmet of salvation. Satan and his enemies will never try, will never stop trying to assault our minds, filling it with all kinds of things. But the thing that can make people drop their shields and take their helmets off most often is doubt. Is God good? Can you trust him? Is God good and can you trust him? Satan's go-to strategy, the thing that he used on Eve in the garden was to try to create doubt. Did God really say that you can't eat of all the trees in the garden? How do you know he's not you know, holding back on you? How do you know he's not holding out on you? He seems like the cosmic fun police. He's trying to keep something from you. And if we can't trust God, then we're either going to live in constant fear of what he may or may not do for us. We're going to worry, am I saved? Am I really saved? Am I not saved? Or we'll just walk away completely. Doubt can lead to fear or it could just lead to rebellion. We doubt your love, we doubt your provision, and we either live in fear or we walk away completely because we doubt God. The assurance of our salvation is our impenetrable defense against anything the enemy would throw our way. We need the helmet of the assurance of our salvation. Whenever Satan tries to get you to doubt God's goodness, look at the cross. Whenever he says, 
you're not good enough. God's not good. You can't trust him. Look at the cross. That's how much he loves you. He became one of us so that he could sacrifice his life for you. He went through the cross. That's how much he loves you. We can trust him. Lastly, Paul says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now you've heard this before, but this is the only offensive weapon that Paul describes here. We have, you know, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's what Jesus used. Our weapon against him is the scripture. Okay, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, he used scripture to beat back the devil three times. And do you know where those scriptures came from? Does anybody remember where he quoted? Deuteronomy. He quoted from, when was the last time you were in Deuteronomy? Okay, he used Deuteronomy three times to beat back the devil. Look at how much ammunition we have against the devil. And yet a lot of people never pick it up. And so they're in the battle and they get bloodied and they got beat up and they're like, why isn't this happening? But they're not taking advantage of what God has given us. If it was in a movie and you were watching somebody in a battle and he had a sword laying right next to him, but he didn't pick it up, you'd be yelling at the TV. Pick up the sword, stupid. That's us sometimes. Pick up the sword. You want to fight back the enemy. God refers to his word as a sword in Hebrews 4. The word is described as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Roman sword was fashioned in such a way. It was sharp on both sides. It was quick. It could penetrate. It could pierce. It could cut in all directions. And that's what the word does. It cuts to the very heart of our actions, the very heart of our intentions. That's why we go through the Bible the way we do. That's why we go verse by verse. We don't escape any of it. We go through God's counsel every single verse. And we talk about the hard things. We talk about the the fun things, okay? God's grace, God's mercy, but also punishment and righteousness and holiness and what that means when we don't um, embrace him. We need to be those that know the truth so that we can correctly handle the word of truth. We need to understand it so we can wield it and fight off the attacks of the enemy and experience freedom. Now you might say, Nathan, I don't like all this talk about battlefields. I don't like all this talk about weapons. I'm not a soldier. Well, there's no room for pacifists in the kingdom of God, okay? Once you said, I do to Jesus, once you made him the Lord of your life and accepted him as Savior, you are now standing in enemy territory because whether you realized it or not, you were once a prisoner of sin. You were once a prisoner of the dark. You have defected from the dark to the light, and you are now standing in enemy territory. And you can try to be a pacifist, but that's not going to keep the battle from coming to your door. And you're facing an enemy that has no mercy, that never sleeps, that's not going to give up. We can wield the sword if we're students of the word. God's word will set you free. Mark's gospel tells us that the people there in that region put chains and shackles on this man, this demonically possessed man, to try to subdue him. But it tells us that he was so strong demonically that he would bust the chains, that he would break open these shackles and smash them to pieces. They were trying man-made solutions to a spiritual problem, okay? Man-made solutions to a spiritual problem. It didn't work. The only thing that set this man free was being in the presence of Jesus. That's the only thing that freed this man. Now, I want to say something. I'm not trying to be controversial, and please, like, receive this in the spirit with which it's given. I love you guys, okay? There is a lot of value in counseling, Christian Bible-based counseling, okay? If you're a Christian, I do not recommend that you go to a secular counselor. I don't recommend it. They are trying to use man's wisdom, 
Okay? And we have spiritual problems. We're told that we do not fight against flesh and blood, that we are dealing against principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. We have a spiritual battle. They're trying to use the wisdom of you know, Freud and Jung and all of these people. But ultimately what we need is spiritual breakthrough. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, there's value in counseling. I believe in Christian Bible-based counseling only. We just need to make sure that, and mindful that we're not defaulting to human solutions for spiritual problems. Deliverance happens when we're in His presence, and we're in His presence when we break open the Word, when we're worshiping, when we're in prayer. And again, those things sound simplistic. Nathan, you say those three things all the time. That's right. Easy to say, hard to live out. Agreed. That's why we do it together. Okay. Listen to what the demons say as they approach Jesus. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, these demons had never met Jesus in human form before, right? They'd never seen him, but spirit recognizes spirit. They recognize this is the second member of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. Don't torment us. What are they referring to? Satan knows the scriptures. He knows it way better than we do, okay? And he uses it constantly to try to trip us up, to try to half-truth scripture and try to lead us off track. He knows how the story ends, Okay, He knows that there is a divinely appointed time for his judgment and his punishment. I think these demons were wondering, have you moved up the timeline? Like we thought this was later on. Are you here to torment us before the time? They knew that Jesus had the power to destroy them at any time. Okay, So why did they still try to trip him up? Why did they still try to tempt Jesus? It says that he was tempted in every way, same as we are. Every way that we're tempted, Jesus was tempted to and overcame. King David asked the question in Psalms 2. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. They continue to be deceivers because they are also self-deceived. They've deceived themselves. They're self-deceived, but they still knew what the outcome was going to be. They said, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now, this verse says, if, but truly there was no doubt. The connotation being, in light of the fact that you're going to cast us out, why don't you send us into the pigs? Fitting, because pigs were one of the most unclean animals to the Jews. To the Jews, the pigs were the worst, okay, the most unclean. They couldn't own pigs. They couldn't eat pigs. It's a very sad situation. Okay, so thank God that he declared all foods clean, and now we can have barbecue. Okay, very thankful for that. He turns graves into gardens, right? Amen. Okay. Jesus tells them with a word. All he says is go. They had to ask permission. They had to ask permission from Jesus to go from the man to the animals. He says go. Listen, demons may be running amok. Evil forces may be running amok here right now, but let's not lose sight of who is in control, who's really in control. All he has to say is a word. He can intervene at any time he wants and tell them to be gone. In Mark's gospel, chapter five, we read that Jesus addresses the demons directly and he asks them, what is your name? And the demon replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's a scary thing. The demon said to you, we are Legion, we are many. 
Now, depending on the time period that you look at, a Roman legion consisted of somewhere between 4,000 to 5,000 men. That was what a Roman legion was. And then we're told that the number of pigs that were on the hillside that day was about 2,000. There were a lot of demons inside this guy. So Jesus cast them out, they go into the pigs, they run down the hill, and they drowned. Tragic. Okay? Tragic scenario. It's not that Jesus is not, you know, because he doesn't care about animals. He cares about people more than he cares about animals. So people try to get all upset that he drowned the pigs, okay? Don't worry about that. It's a very tragic situation. Not because of the pigs, but because the people found out about it. They came out to see if it was true. They see the man sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they freak out. They ask Jesus to leave. That is the tragedy in this situation. Jesus frees the man. They go out. They see it. And they say, we want you to leave. We want you to get out of here. They caught a glimpse of the supernatural and they panicked. The disciples got a glimpse of the supernatural and it drew them into deeper relationship with Jesus. They catch a glimpse of the supernatural and it pushes them away. John 3.19, Jesus said it plainly. This is the judgment. The light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And this is our society today. They don't care anything about the Lord. They don't want to hear about him. Don't talk to me about righteousness. Don't talk to me about holiness. I just want to live my life. Okay, live and let live. There's an old James Bond movie uh, called Live and Let Die. Right? It was also a song. But it was also a movie before it was a song. Live and Let Die. Now, if we're not letting our light shine before men, if we are not being salt to a decaying world, if we're not standing up for the gospel, then we have a mentality that is live and let die because people are dying without a witness, without hearing the truth. <clears throat> Whether or not they respond is not up to you. It's not. We're just supposed to shine. We're just supposed to be salt and light and let the Holy Spirit do its work inside of people. How they respond is not up to you. We're just supposed to live it out and show the world that we're different, and that will either attract people to Jesus or they won't want to be around you. Okay, if we're living the way that Jesus wants, to, wants us to live, it's either going to attract them or they're going to not want to be around you at all. Okay, that's the two scenarios. Okay, wrapping up. Jesus and his disciples are climbing into the boat. You guys can come up. And in Mark and Luke, we're told that the restored man begged Jesus to let him go with them. He wanted to go with them. Now, there were two men on the other side of the Sea of Galilee who asked Jesus if they could go with them. But he gave this man very different instructions. He told those two men, he said, you better count the cost because it's not going to be easy. And they didn't get in the boat. This man is begging to go with Jesus and he gives them different instructions. In Luke 8, he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man had no attachments. He was completely free. Okay, he was ready. Jesus told him, actually, the best way that you can serve me is to go be an evangelist. All right, go be a missionary. Those people, and I, I find this interesting because who was he going to be an evangelist to? All the people that just told Jesus to leave. He was going to live there and preach to those people and show them everything that God had done for him. God is so gracious with us. His love extends even to those who reject them and gives them another chance. 
That's what he asks you and me to do as well. Go tell people all that God has done for you. Tell them why you're different. Tell them why you have a hope inside of you that's different than what everybody else has and whose management you're now under. 1 Peter 2, 8 through 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Two things that I want to leave with you today. First, we're in a, if you only remember two things out of this whole thing, okay? You're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual war. Out there is the battlefield. When you walk through the door, you're in the battlefield. This is the hospital, okay? And Christ is the cure. This is the hospital and Christ is the When people say to you, I think religion is a crutch. I think Christianity is a crutch. You say, absolutely. It's a crutch. It's a wheelchair. It's the gurney, okay? It's the ambulance. It's the whole thing. I am dead apart from Christ. If you walk into battle unprepared, it's going to be rough. It's going to be painful. Some people are completely overcome by the taxes of the devil because they have nothing to do battle with. They haven't put on the armor of God. But if you take it up, as Paul says, you can withstand the evil one and stand firm. Okay, so the first is we're in a spiritual battle. Second, you've been saved for a purpose. Not just to go to heaven, okay? Even though that's our final destination. It's going to be awesome, and we can't wait to get there. But you've been saved for a purpose. You've been saved to be a witness for Jesus. Okay, before he ascended, he told his disciples, I want you to go into all the world and be my lawyers? No, be my witnesses to a lost world. The early church father, Thomas Aquinas, once said that when you want to convert a person to your view, you go over to where he's standing, take him by the hand, and guide him. You don't stand across the room and shout at him. You don't order him to come over to where you are. You stand where he is, and you work from that position. He said that's the only way to get people to budge. Jesus went all the way across the Sea of Galilee, six miles for these two men, just for them. He gave them purpose. You're freed. You're redeemed. Go tell the gospel. Tell everybody what God's done for you. I read this this week. It's interesting. After businesses were ravaged by the bombs in World War II, shop owners, when they returned to their shops, they would clear away the rubble and they would put up signs that said business as normal. Okay? Kind of like we did here a couple years ago. They would clear away the rubble and say, put up a sign, business as normal. When God takes over our lives, when he saves us, he wants us to put up a sign that says under new management. It's not business as normal. It's under new management. Yes, we're in a battle, but we've been saved for a purpose, to be a witness and to bring him glory because we're under new management. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. 